If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be really honest, I can really use your direct support during this time. Please, of course, do take care of yourself and your loved ones first. But if you are able to become a patron starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. And thank you so, so much to our existing patrons. It really helps a lot. I mean, what I'm going to say in the end is that we're absolutely appalled at the way the architectural profession is is continuing and i've been at it for for 30 years and they're still churning out buildings which are form driven pretty forms that have nothing to do with they don't know where they are they i mean every building looks as though it could be placed anywhere That was Mick Pierce, a renowned architect who uses biomimicry to design and develop buildings that have low maintenance, low capital and running costs, and renewable energy systems. Beyond these technical sort of advantages though, it's really about being more observant and working with our bioregional environments in the architectural design, rather than simply conjuring up ideas on what we want things to look like completely independent of those contextual considerations. So to further that, we're going to explore how the field of architecture has been largely taking on a similar approach to industrial agriculture with its focus on building things that are form-driven or that we might envision purely out of our minds, failing to observe deeply and work with the local environmental elements, and then as a result, needing more energy and more maintenance to upkeep. How we can learn from termite mounds to design passively thermoregulated and passively cooled buildings, just like how he designed the famous Eastgate Mall in Harare, Zimbabwe, which has an average daily high temperature of 84 degrees Fahrenheit for most months of the year. So yeah, he designed this building without any use of air conditioning by using biomimicry and learning from how termite mounds are able to regulate their interior temperatures. This is all just the tip of the iceberg of what we covered today. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. In fact, I went over to Vancouver to study forestry way back in 1952, I think. <laughs> so wow. I'm quite old. And, and when I got there, I decided to, to, to do architecture instead. And it was really just, I've always been interested in making things. Before that, I just went, I went to school in South Africa, in Cape Town, and I lived, I was born here in Zimbabwe, way back in 38, <laughs> and then Canada. And then I hitchhiked from Seattle to Montreal. So I got to know the sort of northern half of the states that way. And then I got a boat back to London where I went to an architectural school called the AA, the Architectural Association, for six years. And then back back to Zimbabwe. And when I got here, there was a practically a civil war going on with UDI and, you, you know, there was a racial war, really. And so I moved up to Zambia and then and started practicing architecture there. And that was 64 to 73. Then I went back to England to run a a very left-wing cooperative building company up in the northeast. Did that for about seven or eight years. And then came back here and started practicing. Because by then, this was a liberated country. Mm. with the beginning of Mugabe's reign. Wow. It sounds like you've had a very interesting life, having been through a lot. (laughs) Early on in your career, you decided to center your architecture and construction work around the principles of social justice. I'm curious what led you to solidify this mission, and what did that look like for you in practice? I suppose that's how we learned in the early 60s in London. We became very socially conscious and at, at the AA in London. It, it was always that way, and we, and we were going to change the world. So when I came back here, I did get very involved in, in politics as an architect. And when I went to Zambia, I started making friends with the freedom movement. And I've always been sort of attached to the black struggle in in Africa. And that certainly affects the way I I approach architecture. I do things which have some kind of social meaning and not just money to keep alive, you know know what I mean? (laughs) From there, I moved into an Australian turned up in 86 who was preaching how green, green farming, in fact, it was called permaculture in those days, and he explained how his farming method copied nature in a rainforest. And I was absolutely fascinated by that. And I thought, well, if you applied that to architecture and to city planning, all sorts of things would turn up. And they sure enough did. That was way back in 86, 87, so it was quite early. And that's when I sort of started really seriously thinking and reading a lot about earth science and, and the environmental movement. 
So for us to really understand your approach to architecture, which challenges the conventional wisdom within it, you've said before that the Western methods and materials used to build buildings are outdated today. Can you give us a brief background of what the majority of our modern Western methods of building entails and why you consider this outdated? If you take what I'm doing right now, I'm looking at some architects' work, which actually they're, they're Cape Town architects, for a building, or for three buildings actually, in Somalia, where I've just been, actually. I've been to Mogadishu quite recently. I'm horrified by the way in which architects just churn out endless renders, renders of lifestyles, renders of, of buildings driven by form, form, what I call form-driven design. They don't even look at the, the climate. The difference between Cape Town and, and Mogadishu is enormous. Mogadishu is two degrees north. Cape Town is 35 degrees south. So I always I start my, my design from the geography of the place, the, the climate and, and things like that, and as well as the social environment. So it's the natural environment, the social environment, and, of course, the economic environment, these three combine to give me an architecture. Now, amongst all that is my, my rather crazy ideas about termites and things. In other words, I watch and look at nature, and I look at it in a sort of amateurish scientific way. And I read a lot. I read The New Scientist a lot and science and popular science books. So I've kind of educated myself into a new phase of architecture by by reading and by observing nature. That's why the the, the, the Eastgate building is uh, is an example of how termites manage to modify the internal environment of their nests underground. I would love to dive all into that shortly, but it sounds like based on what you just said, a lot of architects design based on their own ideas of what they want buildings to look like, and they don't necessarily take into context of that local bioregion, as in the climate, the terrain, the local environment, the local culture, and everything like that. I'm writing a review on what the architects in Cape Town have just produced, and I've more or less said that if I was uh, their professor at a school, I would fail them. <laughs> it's completely missed the point. In fact, in Mogadishu right now, there is no water. There is no energy. The only energy that they have is diesel engines. The water they dig from boreholes, which is brackish, so you can't really drink it. And they drink from plastic bottles. The, the climate is hot, dry, and, and damp, you know, high humidity, and so on. Now, I'm, I'm saying to these architects, I was asked to review their designs by the client. And I'm telling the client that he's mad to use them. I'm <laughs> absolutely mad. It's an area that where you have to live with air conditioning. You can't survive without it, really. But on the other hand, there are, there are lots of ways of using passive systems. What I call passive systems are simply the gifts from nature, the wind, when the direction that comes from. The sun, of course, is a, is a marvelous gift, as well as being very hot. But they can, what is it, six kilowatt hours hit the ground per square meter. 
every day. That's an enormous amount of energy. And with, with PV panels on the roof, the roof becomes the main element of the building, or should be. You can power the whole building. You don't need a generator. I mean, what I'm going to say in the end is that we're absolutely appalled at the way the architectural profession is, is continuing. And I've been at it for, for 30 years. And they're still churning out buildings which are form-driven, pretty forms, that have nothing to do with – they don't know where they are. They, they, I mean, the, every building looks as though it could be placed anywhere. And machines have to cope with modifying the environment. But if you look at the termites, they have to work without a plug into the power station. <laughs> they use nature, in fact, to modify their, their environment. Now, the materials used largely in architecture and the processes of building infrastructure, are they mostly reliant on the fossil fuel industry? A lot of them are, yes. Well, more or less everyone is still at the moment reliant on the fossil fuel. A lot of materials aren't. I mean, for instance, I do unburnt brick and I do rammed earth, which is really all human energy with very little input of, of fossil fuel. I mean, fossil fuel, unfortunately, is is used for transport, for, for a machine work. Because it's liquid fuel, you can, you can use it anywhere. But it, it's not just materials. It's the whole process of building, which is reliant too much on, on fossil fuel. I don't actually separate material from process. In other words, brick buildings needs brick layers. And in Zimbabwe, we have brick layers. In Mogadishu, there are no brick layers. There's plenty of clay, but the, <laughs> no one knows how to layer brick. They use corals rock, which they dig up and mine along the coast. And then they're actually, we're looking at using polystyrene slabs, which are sprayed with, with concrete and then plastered. So obviously the, the polystyrene, you then look at that and it's a, it's, it's a fossil fuel material. Mm. But then you look at it in sort of global picture and you realize that actually plastics have a good and a bad issue to them. They use fossil fuel, but it's better actually to lock the carbon that's produced, lock it up in a, in a wall than it is to burn petrol in your car because it doesn't go back in the atmosphere. It's locked in. Do you see what I mean? Right. So actually, actually a polystyrene wall is not a bad thing to use. It's very quick and easy to, to make. You can lift a whole wall up by hand and just and cut a hole in it for the windows. So, you know, you, you have to look at the whole process involved before you decide what material to use and what skills to use. Right. So because the issue with climate change is largely carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, yeah. when this process kind of locks that carbon into the wall in a pretty stable and durable form, that may yeah. not be a bad thing. It could be a good thing, actually. It is. I mean, I, I deliver a lecture called Stop Burning Diamonds. And what I mean is that burning fossil fuel in your car is burning something that's taken as long as a diamond to form. Mm. And it's not quite true, but it's, it's something like that. I mean, it's, it's millions of years. And you're just burning it in, in a second, and it's going into the atmosphere. 
Whereas if you use that for, for plastics in certain ways and lock the plastics into your in, into some system, that's not bad. It's better. Right. In fact, the value of plastics used from fossil fuels is about the same as the value in terms of cash of, of buying buying fossil fuel. They're about the same. So the plastics are enormously valuable to us. If we run out of fossil fuel, we'll, we'll, we'll make them out of plants, which may not be a good thing either. But you have to look at the whole process rather than the actual material. We have a pretty persistent and linear view of development that's largely influenced and determined by Western societies with greater political and economic power. So today, many of our so-called developing countries are following the footsteps of developed countries and how they build buildings and infrastructure and develop cities. But at numerous conferences and workshops, you've urged your peers, colleagues, and students to turn away from the reckless waste of our natural resources practiced by our dominant Western culture and to learn the lessons that the third world is holding up to the developed world. What are some of those lessons you think that the developed world really needs to awaken to as it has to do with building, architectural design, and construction? You know, just the experience of working here in the third world is worth teaching to the first world. I've done it with, Eastgate was built here in Harare, and then I was invited to Melbourne to build a building there. And sure enough, I found my approach to design was very different from the people in Melbourne. Mm. So I, I think just that, the fact that everything has to be done by hand, and every, I mean, I have to do everything. There's a power cut practically every day here. And I have to put solar panels on my roof, otherwise I don't get light. So, and I have to do it. So I have to know how to do it. When I went to Australia, there was no light bulb, so I stood on a on a chair and changed the light bulb. Everybody shouted at me and said, "You can't do that. You've got to have a proper qualified electrician to do it." You know, the thing is that the crisis, the edge, people who live on the edge between. Yes, I, I sometimes call Zimbabwe the leading edge of the decline, mm. <laughs> right at the, at the sort of face of, of crisis all the time. And, and that's really good, actually. It's worth, it's worth teaching students about being resilient and, and being at the edge, <laughs> on the edge, living on the edge. Now, do you feel like because you've had to be so hands-on in the process of building and really working with the designs that you create rather than purely designing itself, do you think that has shifted your approach to designing as well? Because in maybe most of the Western world or in more developed countries, everyone is so specialized. So one person may yes. focus on one thing. And then so maybe their expertise really is centered on that one little thing and somebody else is focused on something else, whereas you kind of have this holistic knowledge of every piece of the puzzle. So what does that enable you to do? Well, I have to do I mean, I've just built a market next to Eastgate. I use an example to answer that. What I did was to in order to to convince, I've got to convince clients to spend an awful lot of money in order to build a building. So what I did was to go to the streets and talk to the street traders. Our streets in Harare are just full of very well-educated people who actually haven't got jobs. And, and so they sell tomatoes and they sell anything they can pick up. They trade. 
I found out from the traders what rent they were paying for sitting on a, with a table on a pavement. And sure enough, I found out that they were paying huge amounts of money to what they call space barons. In other words, every position in the town is somehow controlled by a repressive system of, of taxing, which is completely illegal, and, but that's how it is. They, they, they call it the informal sector. That in itself led me to realize that they were actually paying tax and therefore the value of what they were selling was enough profit to build a building with. In fact, the rent they were paying, which was something like a dollar a day a square meter, actually works out to more than uh, an estate agent would get in New York, in Manhattan. From that, I went to the client and I said, look, this is, this is what you should do. You should build a market. Give them security, give them a roof, give them somewhere to store their stuff, and you'll find they'll come. They'll be able to you, – you'll get more return from that investment than you do from, uh, from an office block. Now, this, that sort of thing – if you're an architect in this country, that's what you have to do. You have to do many jobs, otherwise you're doing any work. So I think that breeds holism. It breeds the what you've just been talking about, which is exactly right. You have to be a holistic person here. I have an ancient car, which is a diesel car, I'm afraid, but it's 30 years old, and I keep it going. It's actually a, a Japanese car. It's a very good one. But I have to know how to fix it. I choose a car that many people all over the country know how to fix. Africa has given enriched me enormously. Mm. I'm very grateful to Africa for doing that. And maybe that's also what helped to shape your, your perspective in being so mindful of the context of what you're working within, rather than just taking for granted that you, you can use whatever material that you need, use however much energy it takes to build whatever it is that you're dreaming of. You really take into account the context of what's available, the local environment, and so forth. So I think that's definitely something that most of the Western world needs to learn is we've really become so disconnected from our environments that we're just kind of taking everything for granted and not realizing the impacts of our choices. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are downsides. There are goods and bads all the time that you have to work with. There are bad things here happening that are extremely wasteful. And there's terrible pollution in some places, very bad processes going on. So there are good processes and bad processes. But no, you're right. I mean, I, I find that I, I'm very useful when I go to the West I've just been teaching. I've been teaching in Oregon at, at Eugene, where I had a marvelous time. About, about four months, I had you know very some very receptive students. They were fascinated by by what we were doing, and I, I set them problems which arose from Harare, from from third world. There are also things like when you look at a city. When I look at a city, I look at a process. It's rather difficult perhaps to understand that. The architects in the West would be taught that form follows function. Mm. For me, form follows process. How you build it, who is it for, how much does it cost? You know, there are things that you have to take into account, everything all at once. The other thing is that Africa is in, is in sort of permanent crisis, which is normal. 
people wander around. They don't pay much attention to which country they're in, partly because the boundaries were made not by them, but by by, by Westerners, right. actually. And they uh, value the place they're in much more, I think, than Westerners. I mean, they, they don't look to the national government and they don't have they're not nationalistic themselves. Mm. It's only the politicians that seem to impose nationalism on them. So there's this enormous movement of people in Africa, and there's going to be much more as global warming happens, much more. People are going to move. Like the Mexicans moving north into the States. They have to. Mm. They have to because of, of water. Global warming is going to move populations enormously all over the planet. And that fascinates me because suddenly refugee camps becomes another form of permanent settlement. And cities have to take the brunt of movements of people. They're going to have to more and more do that. It's definitely a really fascinating topic because oftentimes it's more of the developed countries that are sort of the largest contributors to climate change, causing displacement of people who are no longer able to live and work where they are. So they may need to migrate to other places. And then the developed countries sort of look at this as immigration issues and demonize these people for not being able to live where they are anymore because they have problems that were started or created and aggravated by the developed world. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. We, we demonize these people that we call foreigners. But in fact, that's absurd. I mean, we, we're all living on this planet. We've got nowhere else to go. And I think what's beginning to happen, and you could see it in, when I was in, in uh, Oregon, you could see the cities were becoming more important than the, than the federal government. The city, city um, politics is much more interesting and much more dynamic. And people with passion, you can see them. I joined a lot of groups when... Uh, Trump got in and Obama was chucked out or came to the end of his, his time. And we, 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 I went on marches and things. And I, I had a good, some good feeling about, about politics at the urban level mm. in, in, in the States. And I did, of course, want to touch on this because it's one of your most notable pieces of work. So your architectural work for the mall Eastgate in Harare, Zimbabwe, it was inspired by termite mounds. What challenges were you met with as an architect that sparked your fascination with termites? And how did you then emulate their natural processes within the building? I used to walk, and I still do actually, every day in the same with my dogs across the golf course. And on that golf course, there are these curious towers, not very high. They must be two, three feet tall. And they're like chimneys. They have a hole in the top. And if you put your hand down, you can feel damp, hot air rising. Just doing that and watching these things being built. They're always built uh, September, October, November each year when it gets very hot here. The rest of the year, it's quite cool. But when it's cool, the nest temperature under the ground, they live under the ground, right? And their nest temperature is about 31 centigrade. Sorry, I'm, I'm talking centigrade, not Fahrenheit. So 30, 31 centigrade under, underground. And normally the ambient temperature above is cooler than that. And that 
that's when you get a differential, a difference, which is enough to pull the air out. Because if you live underground, the one thing you need is air. They need oxygen, the termites. And they, they cultivate fungi, which they live on as part of their dietary process. The fungi also needs oxygen. So if they don't get it, then they start to suffocate and they have to do something. Well, that happens when the temperature outside is nearly the same as the nest temperature. This is my theory, by the way. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I think it has some science basis for it. Now, when the temperatures are equal outside and inside, they can move the air by building a chimney, and that funnels the air up uh, high enough to pick up winds which blow across the surface of the ground and that that wind and the stack effect is enough to pull air out that process is air mixing now the the whole way they do it is absolutely fascinating it it's too complicated to <laughs> describe over the phone but um, there are all sorts of people studying termites now and i meet them and i talk to them so when I was asked to build Eastgate, I knew about this. I knew that if you use air underground or the environment underground, it's very stable. And it's stable because of the mass surrounding the, the space, the volume. That and the chimney led me to, to think we could actually cool Eastgate and avoid air conditioning by simply using night air. In this climate, we live at about 1,400 meters above the sea, and the nights are cold, days are hot, and so you, we get a differential every day. A differential or difference in, in, in temperature in this case means free energy. So I use that, I use night air by blowing it through with fans through all sorts of ducts and, and what we call heat exchangers under the floor, which is very similar to what happens in a, in a termite's nest. And the concrete surrounding the voids that I'm blowing through store the cooth. In other words, they get cold. And then during the day when everybody's in the building, we blow air a bit slower than it is at night, and that gets cooled by the structure that it's being blown through that's how it works very simply and we get about four degrees of cooling that way when everybody's in the building and that saves a huge amount of energy in fact Eastgate uses about 10 percent of the energy that a fully air-conditioned building would would use wow and so there is no ac in the building correct there's no AC, it's just fans we have to have we we're not as good as the termites, the termites <laughs> not yet not yet. Termites don't have a power to connection. We do use electricity to drive the fans. But driving fans uses far less than uh, refrigeration and, and uh, air conditioners. And you're not contributing to more heating outside of the building that refrigerants may contribute to. That's true. That's true. The uh, the amount of, you mean the heat island and yeah. the heat island effect. No, or isn't, we, we, isn't there a thing where when you use air conditioning, it actually contributes to the warming of the outside temperature? Yes, it does. 
yeah, waste heat in cities is one of the contributory factors. You know, cities are about four or five degrees hotter than the surrounding countryside. Mm. But most of that actually is due to surface area of materials and of roofs and things. You can actually, by just planting trees, you can actually lower that difference. Trees are enormously effective at dispersing heat, and it's simply to do with surface area. You know, the, these all these things I use I call passive, and they're very easy to understand once you start thinking that way. You find you suddenly discover all sorts of things that you haven't even thought of before, which uh, help you in their design. Well, there's a really helpful video on eSkate and everything that you just described. So I will definitely link to that in the show notes because it's really helpful to just visualize how it all works. And I feel like as humans, we have a tendency to want to invent novel solutions to the varied challenges that we face. But oftentimes we end up creating solutions with unintended consequences and problems that we then need a new set of solutions for. So in light of everything that we just discussed, what are some other things you think we can learn through biomimicry so that we can build human societies and cities going forward that don't disconnect themselves from the bioregional landscape, but that embed themselves as one part of it? There are all sorts of things in, a, in, a, in city planning, which are very important. One of them is connectivity, mm. where it's a city that's easy to walk in and it's nice to walk in under trees, preferably. You find yourself walking instead of driving. That saves huge amounts of energy. So cities which have good connectivity is one way. And then, and, and this is very much, I mean, this, this is how you see animals walking and the way they, they connect with each other in the bush. That's the other great thing about living in Africa, that you, the animals teach you massively all sorts of things. You, you go into a game park and you learn so much. Mm. You go to a game park, it's very interesting because it's about animals looking at humans and humans looking at animals. Mm -hmm. And you need to see that, that interaction going on. I think biomimicry is a very good idea because you study process. You study process in nature. And you study it quite scientifically. And it's good. It's a good thing to do because from that, I mean, for instance, I'm in Somalia I, w I went to the fish market and I saw enormous tuna being pulled out. I've never seen such big fish and realized that the sea was very deep near the city. They don't have any water, but they have very damp air. So I've, I've evolved a system in which we pump water up from about a thousand meters down, which we're going to do it too. The water comes up at about 12, no, about four degrees centigrade. And we put that through a coil, just the seawater, cold seawater, and we can distill water out of the air. And it comes out as distilled water. You can also use, use that cooling system for, now, this is, this is how nature works. You see a differential a difference between the temperature at the top, which is about 25, and the temperature 1,000 meters down, which is about 4 degrees. And then you immediately can use that to, to, to generate free energy and free water. And that's what we're going to do. So, I mean, th this occurred to me because I'm, I've got that way of thinking, and I've got it, I've caught it from just observing nature and talking to people who are also, I mean, Africans are very connected with nature. They have to be. 
So, you know, it's worth doing that. There are all sorts of things that, that you know, how the, how the beavers work is fascinating. And I know in, you're, you're on the West Coast, aren't you? I um, am, yes. Yeah, well, you know about the beavers. The beavers' story is a fantastic story. We have a lot to learn from them because they share a lot of the same hardworking ethics. They, they do kind of change their environments, but in a way that actually supports the regeneration of new life around them rather than the destruction of life around them. Exactly. And that, that sort of thinking is, is really good. And then you start making the beginnings of beaver dams. There's a crowd in, I think it's in, in uh, San Francisco somewhere. In, somewhere in the, in the Sierra Nevada, they're making starting beaver dams on, on streams mm. as a way of combating the problem you're having with reducing snow melt. As you know, you're getting less and less snow, so you're getting less and less water and so on. But you can store what it's all about making sponges up there that hold the water back. So when it, when it rains, you don't lose it all into the sea. You, you, you create sponges. And this is what beavers do. So, I mean, any, anything like that that you find is worth so much to farmers, to architects, to everyone. Finally, architecture is a field that the everyday person may not feel like they have influence over or are engaged with, even though we're influenced by it every single day. What would you recommend our listener do, whether they are in the field of architecture or not, to support a greener future in construction, urban design, and building going forward? We need to talk and meet architects, get, get involved with the way cities work. If you wanted to study a city as anyone and you have a little bit of science and you think of it like an ecosystem, then you're talking about energy flow and about process and about things like that and how people move and how you move every day. How do you get to work? How, you know, All these things are, are part of um, city life and process. I would advise anyone, I mean, the thing about architecture is a fascinating, it's, it's so good because it's holistic and has to be. Anyone who's interested in making cities or making houses or even living in a, in a more constructive way instead of jumping in a car, take a walk mm -hmm. and, and have a look, walk under trees, find out why, why it's cooler in the shade than under a, a, a concrete roof. If you walk under a tree, it's about seven degrees cooler than uh, walking under a concrete roof. And it's extraordinary, and it's to do with surface area. It's applying science, or what I call earth science, to everyday life. I think that's very important for people, not just architects. We all are strong people. Working hard every day and night Trying to make the world peaceful And we won't give up without a fight We're gonna help those who are in need Yes, we believe they can succeed Overcoming obstacles every day You'll be okay, you'll guide the way Don't matter big or small, we're gonna do it all That's who we are, yeah
What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? I keep track of things by reading New Scientist, and that gives me reviews. And then I pick up books that look interesting. And New, New Scientist is very good. I mean, there, there are lots of popular science journals that you have, which are very good. So I would I would follow those, and, and there are dozens of books that that are very well reviewed in in New Scientist that I that I tend to read. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> I'm lucky. I actually I don't get depressed. Actually, I, I find uh, life is fantastically interesting. I mean, we live in rather a depressed place, actually. But I value remaining positive enormously. Otherwise, I can't cope. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? For my health? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, I've just been actually. I'm drinking. Kombucha. <laughs> kombucha, kombucha at the moment, which my mother left me. It's a very nice drink, actually, but it's been going. No, I'm, um, I walk every morning with my dogs, and then I swim 20 lengths in a, in a pool. I'm very lucky to have a pool. And I'm, I'm actually, I've got prostate cancer, which I've managed to manage very well, mm. and I've kept, it, I've kept alive. It's the second bout of cancer I've had in my life, and I see, I'm 82, and I seem to be fine. I'm sorry to hear that, but I, you sound yeah. like you're coping with it very well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Actually, there, there are two things. There's a, a game park where I'm designing what they call lodges for for tourists to stay in, and I'm turning them into hides. Mm. They're almost invisible to the animals, but the animals know they're there, but they don't feel threatened by them. So there's a there's a sort of I'm, I'm I'm really getting interested in that. And the other one is is Mogadishu. Mogadishu is really an amazing place, full of amazing people, but they have Al Shabaab. They have the the terrorists who come and and blow up and bomb people regularly. About two weeks ago, they, they killed 90 people at a tax, people queuing to pay their tax. Mm. But at the same time, we're, we're building, we're, we're trying to build rebuild the city, and we're doing it without water, without energy. So everything has to come from the sun. And it's wonderful, actually, to be able to do that. There are always positives. That, that keep me going. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Oh, I think what's hopeful is that we are living in more and more concentrated cities, and cities are, are the way to go because they relieve more and more country for, for the rest of... You know, industrialized farming, I can see collapsing more and more. It's not going to work. The other thing is that climate change is happening much faster than we predicted. That will change everything. There's a marvelous book I've been reading by a German called The Metamorphosis of the World. And metamorphosis, in a way, is is much better idea than climate change or anything like that. Now, metamorphosis is rather like the story of the guy that woke up in the morning, he found himself, he changed into a beetle. Mm. It's uh, Kafkaesque. But it's, in fact, going to change everything. It's going to change society. It's going to change completely 
the feelings we have about nations and about nation states and, and, and politics. So it's a very exciting time. And I think that I can hear the young ones like you really behaving very positively. And that's very hopeful. Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Mick's work, you can head to www.mickpierce.com. This will be linked in our show notes as well as the other resources and videos of his work that we mentioned. Mick, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and inspirations and wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Make it happen. (laughs) Dream, Dream away, but make it happen. (laughs) <laughs> you know, go go out and do it. And then, you you know, you, you, you find actually doing things really is very positive. 